2: Hello and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hey
1: guys, Dr. Santos here, pediatric infectious disease doc and researcher.
2: How you doing? And welcome to Travel Medicine After Dark.
1: Wow, wow,
2: wow. Right? Oh yeah. I don't I don't have the smooth jazz sound effect <laughs> queued up. So Nor
1: licensed, yes.
2: Like that's ever stopped us. <laughs>
1: We've tried. I don't know <laughs> no, we haven't.
2: <laughs> you can't play that without yeah. a license. I'm doing it, Santosh. Watch me.
1: Why well, <laughs> Yeah, I I believe that you <laughs> I believe that I can. <laughs> as you can clearly see. Uh no, I love our after dark episodes.
2: To be fair. Mm. After dark now simply means anything from 4 p.m. onward.
1: That's true. <laughs> That's absolutely true. Uh, Until we get rid of this weird time change that we have.
2: But will that work?
1: I I don't know. (laughs) At least it'll be six and not five. Or Mm. five and not four. I'm going to give
2: you the thoughtful NPR grunt. Mmm. Mmm. Interesting. (laughs) Well, Santosh, do you know what this week is?
1: Somewhere in the middle of November, I'm guessing.
2: Okay, technically correct, which, as we have established, <laughs> is the best kind of correct. But I was referring to the fact that it is an alternate week.
1: <gasps> oh, my gosh. And, and, and alternatively, are we going to grace our listeners with one of their favorite biweekly segments?
2: Yes. I never it's bi weekly twice a week, every other week. One <laughs> day I'm going to learn that. But it's not gonna be today because no. we are too busy, ain't nobody mm-hmm. got time for that. Instead, mm-hmm. it's time for everybody's favorite segment, journal club. Yeah.
1: Oh yeah. Now you I know it's journal not club. a real really journal love.
2: club unless you wave your arms around like Kermit <laughs> the Frog. <laughs>
1: I hope you all did. If you haven't, new listeners and whatnot, go ahead and tap that little reverse uh, button on your uh, your podcast app. There, we'll wait.
2: Welcome and Now up. that we're back, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like no time passed at all. Yeah. <laughs> so oh, the,
1: the the miracle of editing.
2: <laughs> so the theme for this week's journal club, appropriately, is. But will that work?
1: <laughs> yeah, th- there were a few like nice little ambiguous pieces in here that I really loved, and I-, I guess we can very rightfully ask at the conclusion of reading each of these. But will it work
2: for the first story? Santosh is taking two things that go together like peanut butter and jelly. And of course, I'm referring to traditional Chinese medicine and COVID-19.
1: Oh, dear. <laughs> Josh, I mean, will that work?
2: No, 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 it totally will. Stay with me. Okay, so hear me <laughs> okay, out. Okay.
1: All right, all right, okay. I'm, I'm, I'm here, I'm here.
2: We have established over the course of this season That we are pro-vaccine as it decreases your risk of catching COVID.
1: It does. Yeah, absolutely. Go ahead, go ahead, sir.
2: We have also established there are a variety of ways to do this, and we're constantly looking for new ones. But what you may not be familiar with is that I dabbled for, you know, about a few months. I dabbled for a few months in traditional Chinese medicine, and one of the first things I learned how to do was cupping. Uh, because they don't let you near the acupuncture needles until you can uh <laughs> handle your glassware.
1: <laughs> so as it uh, just to, you know, educate some of our listeners out there, although we have a very educated audience. I'm I'm almost, you know, I I know are are good people, but the like cupping like you, when you gently like put your hands under something. Is that, is that the technique? I don't know what you do. It's
2: not like the Patrick Swayze cupping. Instead, (laughs) it is an ancient form of alternative medicine or traditional Chinese medicine in which a therapist puts special rounded cups on your skin that have been heated for a few minutes to create suction. And it, you know, just sucks a little bubble of skin right up (laughs) into the cup And people get it for many purposes in TCM. It's used to help with pain, inflammation, blood flow, qi manipulation, relaxation, well-being. And it's even occasionally used as a type of deep tissue massage.
1: Okay, got it, got it, got it. So this is um, physics 101 right? So when air cools down, it contracts, right? So you start off by heating air in a glass or you said sometimes ceramic or pretty much always glass?
2: It's usually glass. It can be bamboo, terracotta, supposedly silicone, although I don't know how well how comfortable i feel that with works. that idea <laughs> uh, sure
1: so the cup needs to be rigid so it doesn't collapse but if the inside air of the cup is hot and you apply it and the ambient temperature is cooler then the air cools down and therefore the volume of the air inside contracts and you have vacuum or suction so but before you is-
2: lose that suction you flip the cup upside down you put it mm-hmm. on the skin and this causes your skin to rise According like to the vacuum and red yeah. in the area under the cup as your blood vessels expand, the cup is generally okay. left in place for up to three minutes. Okay, and okay. then uh, <laughs> it, when it's <laughs> removed, it leaves a tiny little bruise that you have for like <laughs> the next few days and if you're first getting introduced to cupping you might get only three to five cups placed in your first session uh, okay, and it's okay. very rare to get more than five to seven placed even for any even for treatments in China
1: it's kind of a gentle pinch so to speak so it's it's not one of these things that's like a you know uh, acupuncture being you know the needles going in or something like this this is really just a little Little pinch just like that. But it's it's done with the cup rather than with your fingies.
2: It's more like uh do you remember those old hmm, there's no way to say this without being problematic? Indian burns. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's entirely fair. Yeah. This was a horrible prank that little boys, generally speaking, would do where You grab someone's, usually their wrist, and rub, 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 rub. rub. And, you know, when you took your hand away, you left a a bruise and a hickey, like, so to speak. Oh, Josh, this is like a hickey.
2: Yeah. All right. So now, (laughs) now that we've explained to you uh, the traditional Chinese method for making hickeys and offended many, many people along the way, let's talk about how it connects to COVID
1: yeah because this is so just to be sure, when it comes to things like pain, anxiety, you know, these kind of things, there are a lot of tie-ins with acupuncture and cupping. but when you have something like you know microbiological disease, you know, the worry is trying to apply these kind of methods to, you know, infectious disease and immunology is less. Uh, you know, kind of favorably looked upon by Western Well,
2: There's medicine. not, there aren't a ton of studies that point to the effectiveness of cupping for the things which we have studied. Gotcha. That's, gotcha, that's a tricky sentence. Doesn't mean it's not yeah. effective. Just means the things we have suspected it may help with, it doesn't. Uh, however, gotcha. it is now that's a, that's being fair. used, however, it is now being used as a type of COVID-19 vaccine delivery method. And you may be asking yourself, okay. how could a hollow cup possibly deliver vaccine? Right now oh. this these crazy okay. liberals and their vaccines. <laughs> they'll just think of anything to throw to throw <laughs> particles at you. Not true, my sure. friends.
1: Okay, okay.
2: When it comes to vaccines, we have learned suction against the skin seems to somehow make the cells of the dermis take up and more efficiently use vaccine particles,
1: okay, okay, so in this particular case, you're you're doing something to the skin, you're you know lightly abrasing it, you know you're you're making it kind of pucker stretch, and then when you deliver the vaccine, so you know, for instance, Pfizer, BioNTech, or Moderna's, before or after you do the cup, before,
2: before. So, in, in this okay. particular trial, it's they're using a plasmid made by South Korean biotech firm Gene One Life Science, and oh, the plasmid, okay, okay. the plasmid, much like most of the other kind of mRNA vaccines or even the uh, the DNA, the DNA ones, encodes the coronavirus spike protein. So this is being investigated more for the delivery method rather than the vaccine itself, uh, because this this particular South Korean vaccine has not yet been approved. But the vaccine will be injected into the skin of the arm as normal. Then the suction machine is applied at the injection site for 30 seconds. Way better than three minutes, right? (laughs) And because it's only 30 seconds, you're not getting a hickey along with it. It isn't painful and leaves no mark
1: this is going to be a little bit different than the current uh vaccines i i think every last one of them so in in this country in the united states we have pfizer biontechs we have modernas uh so-called comernity (laughs) who came up with that name and then uh janssen or johnson and johnson has that one we have um i don't think we have astrazeneca oxford
2: available here do we No, no. AstraZeneca hasn't been approved by our FDA, nor has Sinovax.
1: Right. And there's a couple of these others that that are seen around the world. There's actually a, a big cadre of vaccines out there. But... The issue is that most of them are given, all the ones here at least, are given intramuscular. So it's actually much deeper than just the skin. It goes into the actual muscle tissue. So this is a different delivery in a couple of ways, because this is delivered either intradermal or subcutaneous, right? And then you do the suction on it.
2: Now, we're not jumping straight to trying this on humans just yet. But studies on rats that have been published within the last week from when this episode releases showed that using this suction device actually boosted the amount of antibodies made by the animals post-vaccine a hundredfold.
1: Oh, nice. Okay, okay.
2: Now, a hundredfold in rats versus a hundredfold in humans may or may not be that. You may not see the same scale of right. of response but the working theory is that this happens because the stretching and then subsequent relaxing of the skin cells obtained during cupping encourages the cell membranes to pull inwards taking in particles that were previously outside the cell think of it as a rubber band snapping back in slow motion
1: <laughs> so this is really interesting. And and I love the methodology that they're thinking of here, because this is actually really simple, just mechanical stretching to allow, in this case, plasmids, which are circular particles of DNA or circular molecules of DNA to get into the cell. Once it's there... As most DNA and RNA based vaccines are want to do, it's then it engages the machinery of, you know ribosomes, um, you know, to eventually uh, transcribe, translate the protein, the spike protein, which is then you know it's assembled and then excreted out into the world and recognized by you know your T cells and your B cells and and you make antibodies against them. So, Josh, this isn't actually too crazy at all. When I'm in the lab, um, I often have to deliver uh, genetic material into cells, right? And we have several ways of going about this. Because if you are just to like, you know, squirt (laughs) in in liquid, you know, DNA to sit on the cells, it's really not going to go through the membrane, you're not going to have a lot of uptake.
2: And that's exactly why plasmid based vaccines really haven't, been a viable method for years because even though plasmids are stable at room temperature and don't have the supply chain storage problems that you'll see with pfizer and moderna uh, they've really been held back by the difficulty of getting enough dna inside the cell so the hope is that by using this cupping method to you know force more dna
1: yeah 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 Yeah, yeah. So we have other ways. In the lab, we actually, (laughs) you're going to love this, we have electroporation, where you actually, (laughs) you send a little shock across the cell.
0: (laughs) Get in there.
1: (sniffs) Yeah. (laughs) And then we do have um, chemo, uh, uh, you know, chemicals that you can use to make little holes in the cell membranes as well. But, you know, these are somewhat dangerous in cell culture. We do know that it kills off a lot of the cells. So, you have to play kind of a numbers game to make sure that you know you have enough cells and enough dna that you know some of them will live and and take up the dna but yeah dna plasmids are fantastic josh you can transport them in fact if you needed to you can transport them on a little disc of filter paper um just you know at at room temperature and it'll be perfectly stable like on a plane flight and then landing and it won't be infectious or anything it'll just sit right there and then You just fill, you know, like um, add some water and the DNA comes right out. So that makes a ton of sense of how you could use that rather than the vaccines that we have currently that you have to encase in some sort of a lipid or something like this. And mRNA, super unstable, and you have to keep it cold or it'll just disintegrate.
2: So, they, uh, they looked at the study, and the results were, as we said, pretty promising. They used a fluorescent mm-hmm. protein, so that's how they could track how many antibodies actually kind of showed up. And okay. boy, oh boy, it looks like a coloring book with a uh, <laughs> sugar-addled five-year-old.
1: Yay, that's good. And you're seeing lots and lots of fluorescent antibody binding.
2: Yeah. So by 24 hours, expression of the gene encompassed most of the cup rim and extended centripetally outward to the region of displacement. And the signal continued to increase with time with the strongest intensity observed between 24 and 48 hours. Uh, So the expression of this gene and how effective it is at getting the DNA depends on the pressure applied at the site, but not the time the DNA amount or the device used to deliver. So you could use any kind of cup. Uh, You don't have to leave it on for a long time, and it only takes a small amount of DNA, but you need enough negative pressure to drive it in.
1: I really love that they're using this method. Josh, we have our, our vaccine delivery methods just for now decades have been kind of stuck in, you know, requiring a needle and, you know, large amounts of vaccine, stability, storage, all these kind of things. This simple, you know couple of steps seem to overcome so many hurdles. So i'm I'm excited for this. This is uh, wonderful because it affects not just one vaccine, but vaccination as a as a practice or as a science.
2: Yeah, so you would still require at least a small needle stick, but this is a enhanced delivery technology. Which, again, although it seems counterintuitive uh, to just use a cup to kind of jimmy the handle in and get more DNA.
1: <laughs> well, no, this is getting us closer to, um, you know, every time you saw uh, Dr. Beverly Crusher on Star Trek The Next Generation deliver a medication, she'd use something called a hypospray. She would just put a little thing against the skin and it would go like that. Uh, and we're we're getting closer to Star Trek times. This is so awesome.
2: So let's uh, move on to our next story, which kind okay. of builds on this idea.
1: Okay. Okay.
2: And it's it's another COVID story. We're going to split half and half this week.
1: Yeah. Um, we can't and, be all COVID all the time.
2: And a new skin patch coded in COVID-19 vaccine may actually work better than a single injection. So again, trying to work our way away from needles, which by and large humans do not enjoy. Yeah,
1: (laughs) absolutely. Absolutely.
2: And instead, create a skin patch to administer vaccines that may give greater immune protection than a traditional injection. Because, again, same supply and supply chain issues. It can be stored at room temperature. And most importantly, it can be self-administered.
1: Oh, no, right. Because if it's, it's, it would be like putting on a Band-Aid.
2: That's exactly what it would be. It'd be a Band-Aid with a bunch of little spikes coated in dried vaccine schmutz that you would uh, lay onto yourself. And down in Brisbane, Australia,
0: mm-hmm, David
2: mm-hmm. Muller and his colleagues have spent years developing a skin patch that can deliver flu polio dengue and other vaccines without requiring any any separate needle or cold storage and they wanted to know if they could use that same technology for COVID-19 so the patch itself is about a centimeter wide and has 5,000 tiny plastic spikes so not one (laughs) needle 5,000 of them but they're super small so you don't even realize they're there
1: yeah yeah so this is kind of like um i guess smaller than um uh burrs or something that you'd find on a like one of those little seeds that cling to your sweater
2: yeah but same exact principle um now okay. each quarter of a millimeter Each spike is about a quarter of a millimeter long and coated with dried vaccine that is far more stable than liquid forms. And it is then applied with an applicator that painlessly presses the vaccine into the upper layer of skin. Uh, You may have this applicator at home. I want you to open your hand and go Mm -hmm. ahead and look at your thumbs.
1: (laughs) That's a good applicator, right there. We apologize to all of our listeners who don't have thumbs. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a new world, Josh.
2: I was just trying to picture like dog listeners, <laughs> oh, rabbit listeners, God.
1: no heard <laughs> people who just don't have thumbs for various reasons stop it <laughs>
2: did they donate them to alcoholic no. drinks like the frostbite toe we've talked about
1: <laughs> no they they have you know either a limb deformity or they've had trauma i'm trying to i'm trying to be more inclusive I, uh, I'm also kind of trying to figure out how that would make sense, because podcasts, by and large, are listened to on the devices where you need thumbs to operate them.
2: <laughs> Didn't think that one through. But will that work?
1: <laughs> so, will
2: this all get cut out? <laughs> so vaccines yeah. delivered this way uh, with skin patches, not thumbs tends yes. to elicit stronger <laughs> immune responses, because as we already noted, the skin is full of immune cells. Uh, yes. So you can use only a sixth of the normal vaccine dose because it produces a stronger response.
1: Right. So as I had mentioned before, vaccines are usually given intramuscularly. So the, the most popular one is your upper arm. So into your big deltoid muscle that you have there. Um, one of the largest kind of juiciest places that You can be sure that you're going to get into the muscle. And a lot of this is to make sure that, you know, you're placing the vaccine in a place where it won't degenerate, where it can be. Ready to pop the question? be disseminated by, you know, blood vessels and lymphatics, you know, wherever it needs to go in order to educate your cells. But Josh, the, the skin is a very interesting immune barrier. Um, I'll give one that's kind of interesting. And you may have actually heard about this before. Have you heard of allergy to meat?
2: Oh, of course. The uh, yeah. the gan, the lone star yeah, tick. Yeah.
1: Exactly. So this is one of these very interesting phenomena that happens that you eat meat all the time. No problem. Okay, you're fine. But a sugar, which is often found in meat, if that is delivered into your skin by, say, an arthropod, like a tick, and that you know, is recognized by your skin rather than your mouth and your gut and everything like that, all of a sudden you can develop an allergy because, you know, the immune cells fire off and say, hey, dangerous particle. So taking advantage of this system that we have in place is absolutely wonderful. And so the native uh, dendritic cells that are there, the the resident macrophages and using those. And I'll tell you another thing, Josh, that this is really wonderful for when i had to deliver COVID vaccines and i was in vaccine clinic i had to undergo training and it's quite extensive to make sure that you're aiming for just the right spot given a person's anatomy you're using the right size needle that, you know, you were saying the vaccine is more stable here. Also making sure on the pharmacy side that the vaccine has not been out of the fridge for too long. All of these kind of factors had to be there. And I had to practice a few times before I was able to go to the patient and get it right. Because if you aim wrong or too shallow or any of these, then you'll hurt the efficacy of the vaccine cause pain all these kind of things if you can bypass all of these problems with this piece of technology holy cow this is huge
2: so you know we're only what two years out now from (laughs) uh from covid and the
1: beginning of it all yes
2: and Mm -hmm. we've already got uh three or four different kinds of vaccines, and now we're looking into non-needle-based treatments, so monoclonal antibody infusions, skin patches. Uh, Merck is developing a pill we've talked about in previous ones. So
1: Mm
2: -hmm. there is a lot of ways.
1: uh, Overseas. I can't remember if it was the UK or Israel, but yeah, they're they're using it.
2: (laughs) So we've got... A lot of different ways to treat this disease, which is good because in a story we're not really going to go a ton into it looks as if covid is finding a reservoir in the u s in deer in a white tailed deer
1: a female deer doe oh.
2: <laughs>
1: oh that sucks yeah we we sh- we should talk about that a little bit, but yeah, we're not going to go too far into it today
2: well it it kind of loops us in it it provides a sort of segue between our previous story and our next one although you also gave us a great one talking about the lone star tick and meat allergies because in our next story is a disease also spread by ticks that Mm, we again may have a new treatment for and i am referring to lyme disease where a new drug treatment could lead to its eradication in the wild.
1: Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. So this is a method that we've always been very, very interested in because Borrelia burgdorferi, which is the the agent of of Lyme disease is it's a zoonotic pathogen, meaning that it affects humans as well as other animals. So it's got a reservoir. It's, it sits, you know, in uh, mammals that are out in wooded areas in the great Northeast. And then you can have a tick, which goes and bites, just like you said, the deer, like a white tailed deer, and then flies away and takes a blood meal from a human and delivers the spirochete to the human. So yes, you can treat humans and, and go after them and everything, but Really, to kill this thing off, you need to go after the the animals as well, where this thing can hide out.
2: Yeah, the source. So the disease is a growing problem in North America, and Lyme disease, Borrelia burgdorferi, uh, is in wild mice, in deer. Ticks that feed on them can infect other animals, including people. And Mm -hmm. if left untreated, it can lead to long-term problems such as, let's say, Lyme arthritis. Uh, at the moment, if you are, have symptoms of Lyme disease in the acute setting, such as a bullseye target style rash and a flu like illness, you're Mm -hmm. given antibiotics like doxycycline that kill a wide range of bacteria, but also have, you know, a few side effects as many medications do, and also lead to the opportunity of creating antibiotic resistance.
1: Right. So, all things we definitely don't want, um, even, you know, especially when Josh, what you're talking about is if you have to use an agent like that um, very widely, right, across, you know, a herd of animals or something like that. So, if we go around willy nilly trying to use doxy, for instance, trying to just antibiotic wipe out, you know, across a bunch of deer then, well, A, more than likely that horrible lime will get some resistance over time. But then just like we have right now the problem with our cattle uh, actually harboring antibiotic-resistant bacteria and very virulent bacteria that can give us problems when it ends up in our water supply and in our food – the same exact thing can happen, you know, spreading antibiotic resistance, you know, with gut, normal gut bacteria in deer and mice and rats and all these kind of things. And you do not want that out there.
2: Now, a new compound may mm-hmm. provide a solution to that problem where we're not going to create antibiotic resistance and we can just massively dose animals. And this compound is called uh, hygromycin A. Yes.
1: <laughs> yes, hygromycin A, correct. Because um, it
2: stops but, it from growing in mice. Yeah.
1: <laughs> but I will, uh, I'll take, uh, uh, not offense, what do you take it? I will take exception to um <laughs> I accept... Yeah. <laughs> to just to just to one part, just to one part. Um, hygromycin A, which is actually and you'll absolutely love this, Josh, also called totomycin. <laughs> <laughs> it's an aminoglycoside antibiotic. We have known about this compound since the nineteen fifties. We actually did, you know, identify it um, nineteen fifty three by Waxman and Henrici okay and they found the antibiotic activity against staph hemolyticus and a few other bacteria the problem really was kind of concentrations and toxicity in terms of you know what we could use it kind of you know on the the bacteria that you know we were looking for not little spirochetes and it fell by the wayside because its utility was just not there within a non-toxic window, right? So that's why it it fell away. But we've known about this thing for Well,
2: for humans, maybe there's a toxic window, but it's completely harmless to animals. And although it Mm -hmm. has little effect on most bacteria, it is highly deadly to spirochetes, such as Borrelia and, incidentally, syphilis. Um, Oh, yeah.
1: (laughs) And it's so cool because... Really, you know, we didn't know about these, you know, spirochetes very well in the 1950s, right? We a little bit, but we didn't think to go over there. We were trying to go after, you know, the you know more. Why we didn't know unquote,
2: about syphilis in the 1950s because free love well, didn't show up for a decade.
1: <laughs> not true, not true, not true. We we knew about the the uh, the de- <laughs> itself, but the the way to kill it, you know, had just come out penicillin right post world war Two, and so now okay well can i use penicillin which is really easy to use and we can deliver this one or do i go for this like a little bit of more of a toxic compound you know um so well, that's stop why calling it...
2: it a toxic compound because again it's not yeah uh in animal tests you know carried out I... recently the team observed exactly zero harmful effects of hygromycin, no matter how high the dose
1: I, I should take that back. You're absolutely right. It It is not, uh, in, in like a horrible rampant, you know, kind of toxicity thing, but it is all relative in terms of what penicillin could do for, you know, at a much lower dose and, you know, for much more availability. So yeah, I'll, I'll back
2: when, way. back before everything in their mother had penicillin resistance. Yeah.
1: <laughs> absolutely absolutely but you're right you're right in in a lot of animals especially rodents um, you can use you know multiple times the concentration that you'd use in a human being safely
2: and that was the problem a field trial done you know 15 20 years ago with doxycycline leaving you know huge piles of doxycycline baits out to kill off all the borrelia in local area mice and deer was successful, but the Mm. widespread use of the chemical was undesirable because it leads to microbes evolving antibiotic resistance and also these antibiotics, which are not necessarily without side effects, getting into the soil uh, and water supply and things like that. Even if they originally came from bacteria in the soil, we've changed them around since then. However, feeding bait laced with hygromycin to mice, can eradicate Lyme disease from whole areas without causing any of those problems. Uh, nice. Because okay. it's extremely difficult for Borrelia to evolve resistance to hygromycin because, mm-hmm. and this is great, the chemical hygromycin itself resembles essential nutrients that spirochetes cannot make themselves or take up using a specific transporter so any mutation that blocks the take up of hygromycin would also deprive spirochetes of necessary nutrients it'd be like if uh you packed a lunch and your bully stole Mm -hmm. it and so you're like all right well then i'm no longer packing lunches well now you're (laughs) both going hungry
1: (laughs) and you're probably going to get beat up anyway
2: Yeah, and that's what's happening to to these spirochetes. So (laughs) that's what really makes it so wonderful is it, by its very nature, cannot promote bacterial resistance because the bacteria, the only way to resist would be to go on a starvation strike and die anyway.
1: (laughs) Right. And I I never completely put it past bacteria in order to, you know— find these little mechanisms and still survive and this this is what uh, Ian Malcolm said right Jurassic Park life uh, finds a way. <laughs> so it it is one of those that I I never want to discount it entirely but yes, because of this mechanism um, you know it, it works so beautifully and the fact that we can give it out there to um, wild animals and get the reservoir out there rather than having to go after every you know human person and and try to attack it that way is a excellent excellent strategy so this is one of a few josh there there are many other zoonotic diseases out there Uh, so you know having strategies and things like this for uh, some of those other diseases would be awesome but starting with Lyme is a great place to start
2: it'd be great because if we could start treating more of these diseases like Lyme like COVID like syphilis I think we would all sleep a lot so you know eradicating this disease would allow a lot of us to sleep easier and perhaps sleep earlier because oh I gotta tell you Santosh we gotta stop doing some of these after dark recordings because they're increasing my risk of heart disease
1: (gasps) No, Josh, come on now.
2: Look, it's been shown time and time again that not getting enough sleep is bad for your heart and bad for you in general. But but not all sleep is equal. But what we didn't know is not all bedtimes are equal.
1: (laughs) Josh, um, I may need to have you pause and maybe entirely stop this episode right here. Because if you're going to go ahead and prove my mother right... Uh I mean no matter what your intent is right now um I don't know that I'll be able to stand that so
2: hi mama nataporum
1: <laughs> that's a doctor mama nataporum to you
2: <laughs> so in a new study researchers analyzed data from over 90,000 individuals in the UK Collecting okay. data on their sleep and waking up time using a monitoring bracelet, you know, like a Fitbit or an Apple Watch or a cell phone, or literally any one of the thousands of ways that technology tracks us.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh yeah.
2: And then researchers followed up with these same ninety thousand individuals four years later, looking for any kind of cardiovascular disease, like heart failure, uh, heart attack, stroke transient ischemic attacks and over 3000 people from the study developed cardiovascular disease over this period.
1: Oh dear. Oh dear. Okay. Which
2: is all what you'd expect, you know, and and not what we're getting to the interesting thing, you know. All right. Well, what are you going to tell people not to sleep? Uh but <laughs> what they learned is that the ideal period for going to sleep correlated with the lowest risk of heart disease was 10 to 11 p.m. And when they dug into the metadata, they found that many of the people who developed heart disease in those successive four years tended to go to sleep after 11. And the risk was, the risk of developing heart disease is 12% greater for those going to sleep between 11 and midnight. Okay. 25% greater for those going to bed after midnight. Okay. And confusingly, Twenty four percent higher for those who went to sleep before 10 p.m. So oh, you, know, you oh. should also be allowed to stay up and watch some cartoons and have a snack, too, <laughs> um, because all of this. And this is where we get into some like boring, yawn inducing mathematics and statistics and whatever. It's not <laughs> it's it's science, but it's not biology. And I don't care. But well, this is just relative <laughs> risk. And therefore, the total risk is still low. Only 3% of participants in this study developed a disease. And we're looking at that 3%. Right. right. And the reason this data is important is this data was acquired directly. They looked at the tracking devices they were given. They didn't just ask them, oh, did you get a heart attack after four years of going to bed? What time? It it wasn't a self-reporting. That can be mm-hmm. very inaccurate and is usually used in this kind of mass population study. Right, right. Um, um,
1: I, I've got to say, as technology moves on, and you were, you know, being a little snarky about it, about how all of our technology is tracking us, which is absolutely true and it's a scary thing. But there is this kind of neat upside is that. You know, just as the Facebooks of the world can use it for evil, we can use it for good. All of a sudden, Josh, I mean, imagine any other point in history where we could track the activity and habits and then disease outcomes of 90,000 people at a clip prospectively. That's crazy.
2: Now, again, this study has only established a correlation, not a causation. So I can't definitively say that if you don't go to bed when your mother tells you, you will get heart (laughs) disease.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. (sighs) This is, uh, yeah, it's not fair to say that one follows immediately from the other. But just as a very general rule, Josh, I think it's fair to say that this jives with the idea that the right amount of sleep does promote cardiovascular health. So just like, you know, you were mentioned it already, not all sleep is created equal, sleep too long, sleep too little, but there seems to be a little bit more precision in this, where you can take the advice of get enough sleep, But, you know, hey, this is probably the right time to to get to bed.
2: Now, there were
1: bad advice to follow. Now, there
2: were important gender differences. The association with increased cardiovascular risk as opposed to stroke risk or TIA or heart failure was stronger in women uh, for all the times after 10 p.m., but going to bed before 10 remained equally significant for men and women. Researchers have exactly zero idea why this happens to be the case, but they suggest that the timing of sleep is probably a risk for everyone. Uh, but ladies, don't go to bed too late.
1: Right. Um,
2: <laughs> so based on these findings, researchers have suggested the ideal time to go to sleep is sometime between 10 and 11. And if you can't do that, at least before midnight, Every minute you delay, the more pressure you're putting on your body and a specific point in your 24 hour circadian rhythm may be beneficial or cons- or conversely detrimental to your health. You I am know, literally could... killing myself yeah, for all yeah, of you,
1: <laughs> for all of you. So you you hit that subscribe button. God damn it.
2: <laughs> and uh, a lot of this study was published in the British Journal of Sports Medicine uh, 2021, and, and it has the delightfully interesting title of Reallocation of Time Between Device-Measured Movement Behaviors and Risk of Incident Cardiovascular Disease. Just sounds <laughs> like a real...
1: Yeah, that's, that's got a pop to it. So, like
2: it, it, uh... <laughs> so grab that, grab a copy of that journal. And then uh, start reading around 10 o'clock and problem solved. <laughs> I,
1: I think, yeah, absolutely. That that should, especially when you get into the hard statistical data, it should lull you to sleep. If it excites you, then I highly encourage you to then apply to a public health a program right away.
2: <laughs> if that excites <laughs> you, we may have a place for you in Travel Medicine Podcast as one of our new research interns.
1: Hmm. Oh, yeah
2: so uh that's it for this week will will that work i think that'll work
1: i I think that'll work yeah get to get to bed between 10 and 11 people that's that sounds good
2: yeah just listen to our soothing dulcet after dark tones Mm, and we'll help you decrease that decrease that heart risk but that's it for this week as always we love to hear your comments questions and feedback if you'd like to support us spiritually emotionally or financially links to do that are in the show notes along with links for suggested further reading this podcast is produced by me with a lot of help from dr santosh and friends and an appropriate bedtime and (laughs) our music is composed our theme music is composed by rachel leisure and as always until next time wash your hands, wear a mask, get your shot, find a country that's still open, and when you've done all of those things, happy travels.
1: Bye, everybody.